Uh, welcome, everybody. This is episode 93 of the Carrying the Culture Show. It's your boy tomorrow, and we have a legend in the building. Um, excited to build with this brother right here. Huge contributor to our to our culture of, of hip hop in so, so many ways that I had no, no idea about. Um, had very little idea about um, the legendary Dr. Dre. Most of us know him from Yo MTV Rap. So salute, man. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate you for uh, taking the time to rock out with us for a minute, man. I appreciate that. Thank you for this blessing. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the peace. Apologize I can't be visual with you, but unfortunately I'm not prepared visually for this evening. But uh, definitely next time I will make sure that I'm more prepared. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, no worries, man. Cause we, we, I'm actually, I'm gonna keep it a hundred with you. We're going to have to do it next another time because you are full of stories. I'm someone that said, you can't see, he just uh, explained that he's not going to be uh, showing the video. So we're just going to do audio on his end uh, tonight, but um, this will still be a good one regardless. So, um, but yeah, we're gonna have to do a second, second one because you know, there's so much um, that you've done outside of the Yo MTV raps thing. Like, and that's, mm -hmm. That's what really blew my mind. Um, to everybody joining us on Instagram, I'm doing some really crazy MacGyver type shit right now. So I will not be checking comments or anything so we can uh, make sure that this bill goes along pretty smoothly. So just consider it. The fact that you're able to see the screen a little bit, that's just where it's at right now. So um, so yeah, we're gonna jump right into it, man. I mean, it, it's, it's, it blew my mind when I was preparing for this, for this conversation. conversation. Um, and, and like I said, there's so much other than the Yo! MTV raps. But the one thing I did want to get into first is how did you get into the music, the music in the first place? Like, how did that, where did that love come, come from? Where did that come about? Music always came from the fact that uh, I grew up being a musician. Um, I grew up loving all kinds of soul, funk, rock and roll, jazz, bebop, you name it. And the funny thing about it is I grew up in the era when the greatest of all time, the one and only Muhammad Ali would say, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Rumble, young man, rumble. Ah! And that influenced us all from the position of his words, his actions, and actually his strength as being a very proud black man inspired us. So when you listen to great groups like the Commodores, Earth, Wind, and Fire, uh, Parliament Funkadelic. Uh, let me see. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, uh, Isaac Hayes. When you talk about those kind of great legendary groups, the spinners, and I mean, you get sucked into this musical void uh, vibe that, that, that becomes the soundtrack of your life. And you got amazing groups like Cheek, that come around and amazing groups like music. And I mean, I can't even begin to tell you. And this is all before the first rap record put together by the great Fatback band called King Tim Third. Yes, mm -hmm. indeed. Wow. So it's it's always it's always been there for you. So we you, I mean we're gonna get to the part where you're in where you're in college and stuff like that. So before you get to Adelphi. And, 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 you know, when things kind of start rolling for you, what were you doing? Like, just kind of frame it time-wise, what were you doing musically before that? Okay, from the late 70s into the early 80s, which is very funny. I was having a, a conversation with a, 
a family member and friend discussing this. I was a DJ. I was a street DJ. I was in marching band in um, from grade school all the way through high school. But there was something about DJing. And when I went to a block party uh, at my cousin's house in Lakeview in Long Island, um, usually there'd be like a band playing on the street. But this was the first time I saw this one guy standing up with turntables and he was playing music. And I kept watching all these women go up to him and whisper in his ear. And he gave what you call the DJ shake off. You know, he nod and he shake them off, mm-hmm. nod and shake them off. And he's playing all this music by groups like Cool in the Game, Slave, um, Mandrill. I mean, um, oh, oh, what's the guy's name? I can't think of his name right now. Um, but all these kind of groups that were like moving the crowd. And I said, I got to do something like that. And my cousin Kevin, he had about 13 turntables in his bedroom playing at all times, whether it be James Brown, I mean, which was like the family barbecue favorite of all time, which made me want to hate James Brown. But anytime you play the James Brown record, you're guaranteed to get people on the floor. Marvin Gaye's got to give it up, mm. all that kind of stuff. So you're like, whoa. I'm playing this trumpet in band and I can't attract a fly. But this guy's got two turntables. I mean, before he really had a mixer. And it's like, everybody wants to talk to him. Right, right. I got to do that. I got to try it. That's, that's, so, that was, so that was what set it off. So, you, so you're doing that. And, and before we get it, so the Adelphi thing, Long Island, you, you know, I, I just really want to talk for a second, man. And maybe you can just shed some light on it. Mm-hmm. To me, Long Island... When I look back in the history of hip hop, Long Island put a serious dent in this game. And, 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 and there's so much history and so much of talent that came out of Long Island. Um, and, and when I found out you were from Long Island, well, you know, you, you know, we're a lot, in a lot of spots. I am from, from a town called Newcastle, Westbury. Now, anyone who knows anything about the history of uh, the way we were placed when our parents went out to find homes, Newcastle is what you would call the area where all the people of color, Caribbean background, black, Puerto Rican, Spanish, Asian, that's where everybody was was put. Westbury was pretty much very white. And we went to school in the Westbury school district, but we grew up in Newcastle. Mm. Because down the park, down the street, there was a big park called Newcastle Park where I used to DJ in the park. But my brother was a huge influence on me also because when he was in school at AIC, I got to see him DJ on the radio, not with two turntables, with the microphone and playing records. And I watched all these women come up to him like, yo, I got to do this. And my brother had an amazing radio voice. So I was like, whatever I do, I got to do something like that. So yeah, Long Island always has been in the game of rap music slash hip hop, because most of us had families that came from the boroughs. I had a relative in Brooklyn, relative in Queens. Well, my mother's and my father's family both were in Queens, St. Albans, Queens. My cousins were in the Bronx. I had family uptown. My mother came from uptown in Harlem. And I can't really say Staten Island, but I've been told we do have relatives in Staten Island. So all those influences came to Long Island because right. we all love music. Right. We all want to be down with it. But yeah, we understand the Bronx started it. 
I used to jump on trains and shuffle off to watch the Grandmaster Flashes of the world, the Cool Herks of the world, the Africa Bambada and Zulu Nation. Matter of fact, when he was the DJ, my aunt lived in that area. So I was always like, yo, what is this? Right. And wow. watching the effects of that on people. Wow. So that's, yeah. So, and that's, to me, that's it's important, man, just because, you know, you know, the five boroughs and stuff. And I mean, I, I, I hear, you know, I hear like cats from the boroughs talk about Long Island. You, you would think Long Island was like on the other side of the country sometimes. Same with Jerry. Basically, they treated Long Island like we were from California. We thought we were the original Compton. <laughs> Boys, they, same shit. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm from CT, so it's, I, I, I feel it even worse. You know what I'm saying? My jersey, mm-hmm. my jersey has no the same thing too. So, but um, so let's fast forward. I heard you. You know, you were on your way. You had your choice of Cornell University, um, full ride. And I think another another really prestig- prestigious school. You end up at a, a Delphi, which has a great reputation anyway, but particularly in this game. And you got Chuck D. Harry Allen and Bill Stephanie, future president of Def Jam, all in the same class with you. Yes. Right? Yes. Basically, I followed the big button of smile. One of my first very animated, very well figured, very voluptuous girlfriends went to Adelphi yeah. on a, a scholarship. And I had opportunity to go to Cornell University. I first had an opportunity to play football at Syracuse with my partner, T Money. But we decided, because my father passed away when I went to school, I decided to stay local to help my mom out. And my stepbrother went to Hofstra, and I went to Nassau Community College. So I just wanted to hone my, hone my educational skills. And we still kept DJing through it all. But by the time I got to Adelphi, and I went to this class called uh, uh, Black, what's it called? African-American Black Music Studies, which was, uh, my professor was the late great, Professor Andre Strobert. And in that class, as you just eloquently put, we had the one and only Harold McGregor, a.k.a. Harry Allen. Media assassin. Mr. Bill Stephanie, a.k.a. Mr. Bill. And the one and only Carlton Ridenauer, a.k.a. Chucky e. D., a.k.a. Chuck D., future public enemy leader, and myself in this one class. And, and, and I mean, just... I can only imagine just what was coming out of like young minds, the young mind of Chuck D, Harry Allen and stuff like at, at that time. I mean, I bet that was just pretty, pretty dynamic. <laughs> would you really like to know? <laughs> I would like to know. I mean, say whatever you well, got. First to- of all, first of all, and people don't get it when I talk about this. And Chuck and I, we always laugh at folks when we have these conversations. We used to just snap on each other incessantly. We would tell jokes. We would be like, no matter what, Harry Allen was a photographer. He was of Harry, Harry, Harry O. Vicious Visuals. He was what you call the crew photographer, and he never gave us pictures. So we always used to jump in his case. Bill Stephanie, who was in charge of the Mr. Bill Show, also the music program director of WBAU 90.3 FM at Delphi University, one of the first men of color who actually helped run that radio station. And he also had the groundbreaking show, the Mr. Bill Show, on Monday nights from 10 p.m. to 1 AM, Chuck, Chuck, or AKA Chucky D, was a part of the legendary um, DJ group Spectrum City with President Hank Shockley, Wizard KJEE, AKA Keith Shockley, and of course Chucky D, Butch Cassidy, and the one and only MC DJ Flavor, AKA Flavor Flav, 
on the hype tip. So when they asked me to come join them at BAU, I had heard about BAU, but I thought BAU was like in Hempstead. Who knew it was at Adelphi University? Shows you how close I paid attention. So mm-hmm. when I went up there, I was kind of impressed because I always wanted to be a part of radio based on what I watched my brother do. But when I watched the camaraderie these gentlemen had and the amount of ideas and what I call the greatest incubator of Long Island hip hop ever, I had to be a part. So I told my partner, T Money, who was going to New York Tech at the time, New York Institute of Technology, and my crew, the concept as DJs, Easy G, Rockwell, Rapper G, Concept Cuties, and company, I wanted to join this unique situation with the night nurse, uh, Amy Wachtel, who played all the dance hall and reggae, the nurse who did the news with us, and the one and only late great Rusty J, who was on Sunday nights, and of course the, mu- the music on a Saturday night with the um, Super Spectrum Mix Hour in one half. And if you didn't understand the vibrance and the vitality of what was going on, you were an idiot. So when we first met and we went to a lunch and I saw Chuck's jacket that's at Spectrum City, I first wanted to kick his ass because there was this other crew that went to this other school called CW Post on Long Island and his name was Spectrum and he wouldn't let any of us go up there and DJ because we wanted to challenge. We said, he's cool, but forget him, we're better. So when I saw Spectrum City, I stepped to Chuck like, yo, what's up with the fact you won't let us DJ up at CW Post? He said, nah, nah, man, you got that wrong. We hate that guy too, he stole our name. And I was like, seriously? Yeah, we're trying to get to him too. So you bond in your same common enemy that <laughs> you wanted to speed him. So we became what you call great promoters, great DJs, great showmen, great entertainers, and amazing communicators through the Adelphi University, WBAU radio. Crazy. And that, and that history, I mean, I've definitely heard, a, a, you know, about the history of Adelphi as far as, you know, just being a you know, big part of hip hop. And again, this is why this conversation is important to me, man, because there's so much, you know. And I got to send a big shout out to the gentleman that stepped in after me when I had to leave mm. to go DJ with the Beasties, the one and only wild man, Steve, and his crew. They picked up the mantle and kept it going. And it was a wonderful, wonderful, and we're all still to this day, great friends. That's dope. Constantly talk and speak. And it's like I said, what I would call the greatest incubator of Long Island hip hop ever assembled. And it wasn't done on purpose. It was just the fact, the drive of what we thought. And again, with the music at the time, none of us knew this thing would last. We just had this passion for DJing and trying to take it to a next place. And we did. This was like, eight, this was uh, like, again, time-wise for me, when was this? Was like mid, early 80s? From 1983 80. to 1986. See, that's, and that's, that's prime time right there. And that's when stuff, okay, so you're, you're you know, you're, you're, you guys, you got your crew. A lot of this, a lot of this you'll be able to read in my book that I'm doing prior to the second book, which both, I don't know how to do it, but both of them out. But uh, it tells, t- tells in-depth detail of all yeah. that happened here. I heard Tokyo. you talking about the book. So, I mean, so, so in, in, a, in a prior in an interview somewhere, so it's not out yet because I was looking all over the place because you were like, read it in the book. And I'm like, where the fuck is this book? Where is no, it? no, what, what happened is when I first finished the first book, which Chuck twisted my arm to write it, he was like, Dre, 
you got to write a story about all this stuff. You, you're like the Mark Twain of stories of what happened with us. And you're the only one that's accurate. And I said, yeah, I do. So I did one book. And it was so long, I started chopping it up. And the first book was called Yo Biggest Stuff. The Dr. Dre episodes from 1989 to 1995, which told my story from Young TV Rats beginning to our last episode with Ed Lover and company and T-Money and Fat Five Freddy. We were about to put the book out and this little thing called the pandemic came about. And I said, no, I'm not going out there trying to sign autographs and meet people with this book like this. So in sitting on it and doing different interviews, people started asking about everything that happened prior. And out of doing that, I started working on the second book, which was always in play anyway. But I don't want to release it all as one big giant book. Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm as important as uh, the first African-American president, Barack Obama. But I think these stories will be able to enlighten people about a lot of things. So I broke them up. This, this first book that you talk about from the Adelphi Adventures is pretty much called Yo Knowledge Me. That's critical. And then you made a good point, man. That's critical because particularly with hip hop, the, the, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stories get twisted. A lot, a lot of stuff wasn't written down. A lot of stuff wasn't documented. And a lot of important things weren't documented. And a lot of our legends are passing away. So um, that's why, you know, again, that's why this is critical, you know, for, for everybody to, to get, to, you know, a lot of this down and, and as well as your book. So let's go to original concept crew. Your, your crew. Mm -hmm. 86 or right, so pump that base. But I 1985. 1985. 1985. Also so, in the book. I, okay. I also though heard that you wrote for Run DMC. You guys wrote. Yes. Yes. Well, let me explain. Before we became the original concept, we were known as the concept. Um, I used to be friends with Rick Rubin, and we used to do a lot of collaborative conversations, and I played a lot of the early Def Jam songs. Stuff like MCA, MCA and Brazute, the Beastie Boys, LL Cool J, um, T La Rock and Jazzy, uh, and Jazzy J, um, a lot of that stuff. So I was very familiar with the Rush organization, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Jimmy Spices of the World, um, Run DMC, etc. Uh, we did this promo for WBAU, and one was called Knowledge Me, which basically was a promo about all the shows. And basically T-Money and I did this voice like, yo, cuz, yo, I went down to the Hempstead Terminal, man, and the guards came up to us. Well, when they kicked it to you, man, they said, knowledge me, oh, man. And it became this huge hit on BAU. And we talked about all the shows because it was Wizard KG and Butch Cassidy who used to talk like that. So T and I just put it together. I did the music with my partner, E-Ski, Eric McIntosh, and it was a promo. Everybody seemed to love it. Then I did this musical tr musical track called It's Great to Be Here, which eventually became came Can You Feel It? Put those two things together, and Rick Rubin wanted to sign us to Def Jam. Subsequently, we signed, and in the year we were waiting to come out, another group came out with the name The Concept. So I was pissed at Rick saying, I told you, dude, we got to get this out. I mean, first of all, you know, my name's Dr. Dre, and there's a guy from the World Class Specter Group using Dr. Dre. Come on, man, we know we got this. So we were sitting in Rick's apartment at the time, 
And MCA, the late great MCA from the Beastie Boys said, well, what name do y'all want to choose? And he said, be original concept. And we were like, yeah, yeah, original concept. That works. That works. Now, he said that after we had shirts made, we had posters we did all in the concept, logos. We were all, I mean, because again, we come from the idea of we do it ourselves and we're going to make this happen. Right. At the same time, and I, this is more in the book, tells you about when Def Jam was going to move to Columbia, Sony. We were part of that deal. So he said original concept. And T was like, yeah, I guess. And I said, that sucks. I hate that name. I hated the name because I made all these damn t-shirts that just said the concept. So we had to go back, take t-shirts, and get the guy to re-silk screen the word original on top of the word the concept. <laughs> so that's pretty much how that came about. But that single started what you call the 808 bass revolution for the world. Because when I did that, as Chuck says, Dr. Dre is the godfather of trap music. Because even before Two Live Crew, we had, we had did it with Can You Feel It? And Knowledge Me, and that 808 bass sound. And when I created that with the great, late great Steve Ed, Rick Rubin, them, they were like, how did you do that? I did it in my basement. And I did it before I got to an 808. I did it with a Dr. Rhythm 110 drum machine. All that's in the book, how that really was created. So, um, so take us to the Proud to be Black, as far as, as far as doing that track. So by that time, Rick had asked me to take over the DJ duties with him and the Beastie Boys. So I was always in the studio with them. They were in the studio around us. I was in the studio at Run DMC, because Run DMC were favorites with us at WBAU, and they loved all the stuff we were doing. So we used to do what I call DJ tape battles on the, on the vans and the buses. We would travel with the Beasties. So I played them this track called Public Enemy Number One by Chucky e. D and MC DJ Flavor. And they went crazy for it. They were like, yo, what is this? I went to visit Rick, Rick, Rick in his dorm room and Russell was sleeping on his futon because um, Mike D and everybody said, yo, you gotta play this for Rick, you gotta play, you gotta play. And I went to play for Rick. And before I could get through what goes on, well, pow, for you, pow, and this noise starts playing. Russell wakes up off the couch, walks over to the tape deck, and throws the tape outside. I said, yo, what the fuck is wrong with you? He goes, yo, that'll never work. It's just noise. Who knew the birth of public enemy? So Rick hounded me to get Chuck and, and Spectrum City to do the public enemy move. Public enemy move. Now, in doing that, Run DMC was doing Raising Hell. I was there through a lot of recordings. I went there to the video for Walk This Way. I met Aerosmith and company um, in the studio and on the video set. And they were like, we're looking for one record. And Dre, do you think you guys can do an anthem record for us? Something, you know, pro-Black. So <clears throat> they had me uh, sit down and start programming the DMX drum machine and T was there and he helped throwing some shakers and some cymbals on it and we came up with the music so then he goes yo man write the whole song write the words I said I need the music and we went back to our uh, friend rapper G and we gave it to him and overnight 
He wrote the lyrics to Proud to Be Black. The whole thing, just the way they did it the, on the record. Wow. We brought it back. We played it for them. They're like, yo, tell them to come in and lay it down. We laid it down, and Running Jay said, this is it. This is hot. Henceforth, Proud to Be Black, the song. Man, and this, listen, and like I said, so just so you know, I have, I have another show at 10, uh, 10.05 my time. I don't know. Where, I'm not sure what time zone you're in. So mm -hmm. we, we're going to have to do this again because I want to get into the OG rap stuff. But there's so much stuff. Like I, I heard, just tell me if just, I mean, you're not everything you hear is true. I, were you on uh, the People's Court? Yes, I was. I, mean, I just heard, like, heard it. Somebody said, oh, ask me if he was on the People's Court. I heard he was on the People's Court. Like, what's the, what's the deal, deal with it? Were you part of I the went to do, I went to do I went to do a party in Las Vegas. I missed the plane. So by the time I got there, which is, remember, I come from New York to Las Vegas, three hours difference. I got to the gig on time. And they didn't want to pay me. So the person that brought me out sued the promoter for not paying me because they oh, he wasn't here on time. And she was like, no, he was here on time. He got off the plane, came straight here, set up, and by the time they wanted to start the music, he was playing music. That's not my fault. People didn't come to your gig. That's your gig. That's your promotion, not mine. Right, right. So we sued, and it went all the way to people's court. What? And Judge Million said, well, you were actually late, so you were wrong, but you also were on time because you didn't miss the time you didn't start the DJ. He, uh -huh. just, he was trying to be a stickler about, you got to be here at 8 o'clock. I got that 8.10, 8.10. Nobody was there. Nobody was there. People started coming in around 10.30, 11 o'clock. But he was pissed because when they came to get me at the airport, I wasn't there. But when I came in on the later flight, I took the um, cab straight to the, uh, to the venue. And I had all my records and stuff, so it was a difference. What did they call you or something, or like you just reach, you guys reached out to them, like to the, the people's court? And no, no, I was hired by a manager or an agent to do the gig, and they didn't want to pay them, so they didn't want to pay me, so they sued the promoter and pushed it all the way up to the people's court. <laughs> Which judge was it? Judge Million. Uh, okay, uh, I, I grew up on the. It was interesting. It was funny. Wow. It was a trade. They were like, Dre, don't go in there. Dre, don't go in there. I said, why not? What do I got to lose? See, I don't believe in all that BS and all that, oh, your image and this, that, and the other. My image is Dre's true. Dre is who he is. Word. Dre always has been that way. I don't play the image game. You want an image from me? It's the one you see. Right, right. Now, I appreciate you even saying that, man, because that's that's what it's about. The real, the real always you know, always shines, shines through. Um, damn, I wish I didn't have this other joint. Yo, so tell me, if true or not, I, I heard that you also, um, you managed, um, how'd you manage Deep Barnes, right? Yes, we did. At the time of the incident with the other Dr. Dre, yes, Ed Lovett, Dr. Dre, and our company, Black Steel Management, managed Deep Barnes. And Rose from Body and Soul. Yes, we did. Okay, so that's in that's in my other book, Your Biggest Stuff, 
about that incident and what happened <sighs> and the fallout and everything. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, that's that, that thing. Always... That's why I did books. And that's why I tell them in those, like I tell you stories and to let you know what's coming up, but there's so much more that I haven't even revealed. And people are like, holy shit, dude, when are you going to put these things out? Dude, I, I'm doing so much work for my Dr. Dre's Victory Foundation to help people who are blind, amputees, type 2 diabetics, because I, I consider myself being super bad. We have so much on the table. The books haven't been sidelined, but we want to put everything out at the same time with the same momentum. And we want people to enjoy the stories. We want to do interviews like this with you guys. And I'd be happy to come back and do part two. As you can see, I answer questions. I'm not afraid to tell stories because I'm not afraid of the kickback. I'm afraid of, hey, what I told the truth, you're upset. I don't know why. And yo, and like you said, I think you said in some build somewhere, I appreciate you come with details too, addresses, like what cats had on, the whips they were driving. <laughs> so that that's important. So look, you're doing a service for every, so there's two, on two fronts. And, and, and we're not gonna get off without talking about, you know, your story, the diabetes is part of Dr. Dre, but you're doing, mm -hmm. you're doing a, uh, you know, a service on two fronts. This, this hip hop stuff and documenting this stuff and sharing this is, is critical, man. And, and um, for, you know, so people understand what really happened and because stories get twisted. And as far as the, the diabetes thing, you know, what's the, well, I want to say this, because you, you were candid about this. And um, I have a show, a, a monthly show on, on mental, mental health, my man, A plus from hieroglyphics. How is, how is be, being in therapy or how has therapy over, over time benefited you uh, as far as just dealing with the mental stuff with the, with the diabetes? Therapy for me, I, I've, been, I've seen seven therapists and left them all. I called it the greatest waste of time for mm. me. Not for everybody. They tried to help. But when I was going to therapy, I don't think being a black African-American, big black man doing the things I was doing, they could understand. Because most therapists are supposed to listen and write down. And I was like, but you're not helping. This is not working for me. And now having talked to some other folks, different mentors, different great people who've been through it, I'm willing to go back and I can address it differently than mm -hmm. when I was walking through it. Because at the time now, from Howard Stern to, um, uh, what's the name of God? Charmin, Shalom, Charmin, God. Everybody in their mama has been to a therapist. And I'm saying, really? Really, folks? I'm still the same Dr. Dre from the position of, no, I don't give a fuck about you in that vein. I'm gonna tell you what's the truth from my point of view. You can disagree with me. I have no problem with that. But as I tell people, if you don't like the story I told and I'm lying, challenge me. Let's have fun. Because I will name names, I will give dates, and I will show times. And if you can if you can outdo that, please do. Because I've heard the story, oh, Russell said he never did that with the public enemy tape. Okay, let's get on an interview. Let's do it. You answer questions, I answer questions. And I'll tell truths about you. You can tell all the truths you want about me. I got nothing to hide. I'm a grown man. I live by my word. I die by my word. I am not, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I believe in the master planner and the creator that guides all our footsteps to our destiny and our journeys. My goal on this planet is to actually help more people do the best 
for those who cannot. So I have no problem discussing early histories and this is what it was. Because I can tell you some, you know, some foul stories and I can tell you some good stories and some great mistakes. But the goal is, can I educate you? Can I give, share my experience? And can I empower you so we can do other bigger and better things? And that's what I'm planning on doing. That's my next gift. Yeah, that's, that's, that's wonderful to hear. And, and that's, you know, listen, I'm getting you back on here. I mean, I know you said it and we said it. I'm talking to MJ. We're like, yeah, we're going to set this back up. But, I have no problem with that. Word. So my, uh, before, you know, I had my final question for you on this particular bill is, is off, the, off the rip, off the top of your dome, Dr. Dre's State of the Union address of, of, of hip hop today. You because you've you've been been there since pretty much the, the beginning, and here, yes. we, here we are in 2022. You want me to have a State of the Union address? Yeah, I mean just your just your 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 observation as an as, as an elder as someone who's who's done a lot, you know, contributed a lot to this game. I respect your opinion on just you know where you where you think it's at. Let me lay it out the way I see whether I'm blind or visually uh, acute. We got a lot of work to do, folks. We have a lot of work to do. And what are you doing to end the gun violence in your community? What are you doing to end the BS in the music? What are you doing to take rap, music, hip hop, culture from competition to creation and to elevation? What are you doing? to show that we're more than just angry black people, angry white people, angry Asian people, Spanish people. What is your contribution to the culture? Not just how hard you can spit, because there are great people in our culture who are doing well, who are doing grand contributions, but we could do a hell of a lot better. We could do a hell of a lot better because with what's happening right now, I feel quite insulted 